you can point me at a modern ID all day long, but like my life is in the terminal and in Vim. I've tried. I tried VS Code. It's supposed to be super cool. I pulled in the Vim bindings or whatever, and I have to get out of my terminal. What is this? <laughs> no, I, I fully agree. Um, we basically are planning to like create like a capacitor build command inside of the capacitor CLI. So that way we'll just use um, the Android SDK from the command line and then Xcode builds from the command line. So theory, there should be a cap build iOS or a capacitor build Android Vim plugin coming soon. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at launchdarkly.com. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Get $100 in hosting credit at leno.com slash changelog. What's up, party people? I want to introduce AWS Amplify as a new sponsor here at JS Party. Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enable developers to build full-stack, serverless, and cloud-based web and mobile apps using their framework and tech of choice. Amplify is built to make front-enders successful because you can use your existing skill set to build full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around back-end, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. Amplify simplifies all of that. Amplify gives you easy access to hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL, serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. Check the link in the show notes for details or head to awsamplify.info slash gsparty. Again, awsamplify.info slash gsparty. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. That's 10 a.m. Pacific. Join in on the hijinks in the JS Party channel of our community Slack. It's totally free. It's totally cool. Head to changelog.com slash community and sign up today. Let's do this. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello, welcome to JS Party, a party every week with JavaScript. I'll be your host today. I'm Nick Nisi. Ahoy, hoy. Ahoy, hoy. And joining me as well is K-Ball. K-Ball, what's up? Hey, hey, life is good, I guess, for 2020 standards. Yeah, awesome. Uh, well, that's always good to hear. And we have a special guest with us today, and that is Mike Hardington from the Ionic team. Mike, say hello. Ahoy, hoy. Welcome, everyone. Excited to be here. Oh my gosh, you might have a better Mr. Burns than Nick himself. <gasps> ahoy, ahoy, everyone. There's an inside joke with uh, a friend of mine from high school that every time we call one another, it's always ahoy, hoy, because he's like such a big Simpsons fan. It's like, well, I gotta, I have to follow suit with him. <laughs> Absolutely. Disney Plus right now is basically just the Simpsons streaming service for me, and that's pretty much what it's been since they came out. So, yeah, really like it. Simpsons plus Mandalorian, just constantly on repeat. Do That's true. Share that I think I've seen half of a Simpsons episode in my entire life. Oh my gosh. I, I don't think I've lived. That still accounts for like, what, 15 years? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've lived in a time where the Simpsons haven't been on air, so... That's just crazy. I just, you know, don't watch TV much and not a fan of that type of humor that much. But I do know a couple of the snippets, like the spider pig is canon in our house. Yeah. 
to be fair, it's really only seasons like three through nine or so that are worth watching. But anyway, we're not here to talk about The Simpsons. Let's talk about Ionic. So first off, uh, why don't you tell us what Ionic is, Mike? Cool. Yeah. Um, so Ionic is a, you know, kind of a UI framework for building cross-platform apps. Basically, if you want to build a native iOS app or a native Android app or desktop, Electron, uh, progressive web apps, uh, Ionic gives you the UI and interactions for building that app, all based on, you know, web technology. So HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Very cool. So yeah, kind of looking at it, and I'll be honest, I haven't really used it yet, but um, it is a framework, but not in like a traditional sense of, of the way we typically think about frameworks, like a Vue or an Angular, but it's more of like, is it something that can sit on top of those? Yeah, I think we could think of it kind of more like a meta framework or almost equivalent to like a tailwind. Okay. Where it gives you the the design language and design system for building out these apps. So what does a button look like? What are the interactions that this button should have? Um, how should navigation uh, and transitions happen? But we don't dictate how your app should be built. So if you wanted to use Angular, you could use that. If you want to use React, you could use that as well. And more recently, if you want to use uh, Vue, you could use that as your framework of choice. Kind of choose your own adventure, and then our components can just enhance your app. Yeah, it reminds me of you know traditional component library frameworks like a Bootstrap or Foundation or something like that. Well, early on, I think dug deep into the integration for mobile piece, as, as I understand. I remember looking at Ionic quite a bit back when y'all first came out, and I think it was originally Angular specific, and then you made it more generic and and sort of pulled up a few levels there. But what stood out to me as unique was the deep focus on mobile development in particular. Is that still the case? Yeah, I would say that's still the case. Like our story kind of, we started off all as cross-platform developers using things like jQuery mobile back in the day. And we were kind of frustrated with a lot of the obvious issues and limitations of using that framework. So we were like, well, what would we do? And we like wanted to build the bootstrap for mobile and comparing ourselves to bootstrap. It's kind of an honor because it's like, yeah, that's what we originally set out to do is just be this ubiquitous set of components and you know UI library for building uh, mobile apps. As that's kind of evolved, you know, desktop, largest form factors, traditional web apps, that definitely has come into focus. But yeah, you know, our, our bread and butter is still mobile very much. And why would somebody go for an Ionic rather than, for example, just packaging up, say, let's go use the Bootstrap example, use Bootstrap, maybe one of the you know, Reactor View integrations, and then packaging it yourself with Cordova? Right. So I think the big reason why you would want to use Ionic is the big focus on kind of modern browsers, modern CSS and JavaScript and having that deeper integration to the native design systems. So like how a button works on iOS is very different from how a button works on Android uh, with material design. And Bootstrap gives you yet another option for how these interactions work, but it's not necessarily at home to these platforms. Ionic gives you the platform integrations that you would expect to get. So users of your apps don't feel like, what am I using here? This doesn't feel right. It just kind of feels like, it feels obviously not native. So Ionic would be a great case here because it just gives you that native experience because we built it to be 
an exact clone of how these platforms behave. When you describe that as a, an exact clone, so is it still implementing it in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, or are you calling out to native components and using sort of an integration like a React Native style thing would? No, we are still using uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So web developers don't have to learn like a subset of CSS or some custom way of integrating in code. They just have the building blocks of the web. That translates, is it like a translation layer between like Ionic and React or Ionic and Vue? Is there like just like bindings to an Ionic component to make it a React component or how does that work? Yeah, so the, the way that it works is that we have this core package. So we build everything as web components. We ship them as standard web components that people can use without any framework. Uh, and it includes this core styles and interactions for the JavaScript. Then as we want to adopt other frameworks, we provide kind of like framework shims, I would say, to make that integration feel like what you would expect if you were working in React. So for React, we have our own set of React branded components that just gives you like the functional import statement, provides the correct type information, make sure that it can pass events and props correctly to the actual web component and manage that. But really, once it is, you know, kind of done with the React aspect of it, and it's just rendering it to the DOM, you just have a component, core web component being rendered out there. Angular has the same thing where it's just passing the types to the Angular's type system and view does the same thing. Just make sure that the components are recognized as view components and it understands the uh, different types and props and events that can be emitted on the component itself. Nice. And you, you mentioned Angular. I think that when I first heard of Ionic, I heard of it in in terms of being like an Angular project, but it's obviously grown a lot since then. Um, do you maybe want to describe a little bit of the uh, the timeline of that? Yeah. So like we started it off wanting to be framework agnostic, mostly because we AngularJS was like still getting uh, its foot off the ground and jQuery was the big framework that everyone used the, the framework. Ember was a thing, Knockout. There were still like these early days of JavaScript frameworks and we were like, well, would if it be cool if we could just support all of them? So we tried to do that, realized that AngularJS probably gave the best option at the time with directives and its custom like component idea. Uh, and we sat on that for a little bit, wrote, uh, we're very successful. Angular 2 came out and we were upgraded to the newest version of Angular, wrote that for a little bit. And then we kind of saw all these frameworks just, you know, get to a point where there is no real difference in which one is better. It's just what is the mental model that you want to work in. And we were thinking, okay, can we actually do this cross framework stuff now? And we ended up building a couple tools along the way to make it possible. But I think like around 2018, uh, we released that first version of Ionic that was built on web components, supported Angular. A few months afterwards, we released the React version. And then earlier this year, actually three or four weeks ago, we released the Vue version. So we've kind of hit the big three, I would think. And the core components are haven't had to be rewritten uh, in over two years, which I see is an absolute win. Yeah, that's awesome. How heavy are those integration layers? Like, I think you know, this is the dream, right? You build it in one place and you're able to integrate with whatever folks are in. And 
I'd love to see more people doing that, but I'm kind of curious, like that feels challenging. So are those layers pretty heavy? Are they hard? Are they, um, you know, needing to be updated a lot as the frameworks churn? Like, how is that working? I wouldn't say that they're heavy. Like most of the things that each integration layer does is kind of set and forget. Like it's just passing for like for Angular specifically, it's just making sure that the Angular compiler knows about the component types and we're mapping the Angular events back down to the native element under the hood. What's really been helpful here is that is the way that we author those core components. We have our own uh, tool chain called Stencil, which helps out in generating the web components. And they're all written as TypeScript components. And we have all that type information at build time. So we can extract all that out and basically automate the entire integration layer. So I gave a uh, workshop for PSConf, nice little plug, where we went over how to actually build that integration layer. And I was like, all right, well, here's our vanilla web component. How's this integration layer work? It's as simple as just enabling it in a config file. And it will generate the Angular component, the React component view, uh, and even Svelte if you wanted that. So it's a streamlined process now that we've figured it out. Now, if somebody wanted to extend one of those components for their own work, can they plug in ahead of the build layer so that you're doing that or would they, you know, kind of wrap it in some way? Like I'm, I'm imagining, for example, if I have a React component, I'm pulling in a component library and say I'm using styled components or something similar locally, I might wrap it and extend it or do other things with it to really add my, my flair to it. You know, say I wanted to customize in a way that y'all haven't thought of. What would be the way to do something like that in Ionic? Is it, you know, pulling in post build? Is it updating, like, can you plug into that build chain in some way? Like, how, how would that work? I guess it would really depend on what it is that you're trying to do. Like, how far do you want to extend it? Because if you just have, like, a toggle, and I want it to be my company's branded toggle, you could totally just, you know, use style components or use some kind of CSS setting where you are just changing the base styles and the base CSS variables that are used there and completely retheme it to your own thing, then that would be like one, you know, kind of, we're just changing some styles. We're not overhauling the entire component. If you want to overhaul the component and like, honestly, I would suggest building your own anyway. Like you could use ours as a base and just like reference it inside of your markup. But if you have something that's very specialized, kind of build it yourself. You're going to be able to better understand all of that than uh, trying to shoehorn our components into uh, an existing system. So really just treat them as like a like a black box component that, and not worry too much about the implementation. Yeah, I mean, like we can think of them more like leaf components. Yeah. And that there's like a termination point at the end of a component chain. Each one of these, like they can be composed together, but you don't necessarily go in like, oh, I want to rip out this aspect of a toggle and I want to rip out this aspect and kind of recompose it together. It's like not necessarily what I think you should be doing. Cool. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to dig it more into the underlying web components piece of that and stencil that you mentioned. But first, I wanted to ask, how did you get involved with the Ionic project? So many, many, many moons ago or before the COVID times, I was a low graphic designer at a company who was put in charge of writing a web app because I was the only one who knew 
anything regarding programming, and it was ActionScript and Flash. So I did that. My boss got an iPad and was like, why can't I load your stuff on an iPad? (laughs) Because iPads don't run Flash. So I learned JavaScript, found stuff that I needed to do to build a mobile app, which was Cordova at the time. Didn't want to make my own components, found Ionic. And I just started doing that work more than doing my real job. I would join their developer forum, help people out, answer their questions, try to do, I guess, you know, free customer support for them at the very, very beginning. And I saw that they were hiring. I reached out and I was like, hey, can I have a job? Not knowing that that would actually work. So I reached out to them. I was like, I see you're all hiring. I think I do a lot of stuff. I think it'd be cool to work. And that was a contract that ended three months later. And they hired me full time. And it's been like six and a half years so far with them. And kind of just, you know, growing through the ranks of community member, semi-official person on the team to official person on the team, and now DevRel representing the team. Yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more about that, too. I'm always intrigued by DevRel and um, what y'all do. Kind of what, what does a typical day look like for DevRel? You know, that would definitely <laughs> depend on the DevRel person you ask. I should also caveat probably, like, now and pre-COVID or post-COVID, because <laughs> it's probably changed a lot. So pre-COVID, I would figure out if I'm going to a conference or not in the coming weeks. But, I, I you know, it's actually it hasn't changed too, too much for me because Good. I've always been remote. So like my my work's mostly always been online. So it's like check email, check our developer forum, check GitHub issues, kind of convene with the team, figure out, hey, I'm seeing like five or four different reports on this bug. What's going on here? Maybe work on a blog post and a video. I would say the standard DevRel kind of tasks that you would expect. That's what I do. And also appear on podcasts. Yeah. So your your users are other developers in that sense. And you're you're really creating content and and helping them along with their their journey. Yeah, I think another dev app I really look up to, put it the best, is like I fight for the users. So it's like when our team or our engineering team or our framework team was just like, oh, well, we can't really do that. It's my job to internally explain to them what problems they are trying to solve and how like changing this one thing, how that could be beneficial for uh, not just like this one person, but here's like 20 people that have the same issue and asking the same thing over and over. We should probably make this change and make this fix. What up, friends? You might not be aware, but we've been partnering with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at changelaw.com, Linode was there to help us, and we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now, and Linode is still in our corner, behind the scenes helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode. They keep it fast, and they keep it simple. Get $100 in free credit at lindo.com slash changelog. Again, $100 in free credit at lindo.com slash changelog.
So in the last section, you talked about using web components as the underlying technology for the Ionic components that you're creating. What's it like working with web components in 2020? It's actually pretty good. I know there's been a long history of, I don't know, maybe web components kind of seeming like, oh, they'll never be ready. They'll never do this. They're never going to be supported in any other browser than Chrome. But I mean, they're supported in Chrome slash Edge. Firefox supports them. Even Safari supports them. Which, if if Safari supports something, you got to admit, it's kind of stable. That includes mobile Safari too, right? Yes, that includes mobile Safari and iOS. So, like, it's a pretty good experience overall. I think, though, that probably the best thing that I would describe it as is being very low level. So, like, there is no templating language. There's, like, no kind of bindings for how things should get reflected back to the component. And then should that trigger a re-render? Like, all the niceties that we're used to from frameworks, that kind of goes away. But if you're okay with that and you just need to know, it's like, I set this on it, I set, and then that gets reflected or like something happens when that is done, you know, that can be pretty nice. Yeah, I have a little experience with web components, but it was the version zero spec. So way different in terms of even, like it was really esoteric back then. Uh, But I spent a year kind of building a component library on top of that, which then had some React bindings on top of that later on to kind of help that transition out of it. But it was not uh, the easiest thing to work with. And I, I think that that's probably my biggest complaint with it is is just like compared to something like React or like other ways of like interacting with the DOM and, and setting things like that, it's a little bit different because it's not as like declarative, I think, as those other ones where you have to like, you have to create this element and then set all of these properties one by one on it or, you know, write a tool to do that. But I guess it's a typical DOM API is the way I would put it. Well, it's kind of the reason why it's built that way is because it is a typical DOM API. And I wasn't in the room when they were created, so I don't know the whole backstory. But the way, like, whenever I talk to people about it, it's like, you're not supposed to use web components directly or use some of these APIs directly. At least I don't think so. They're low level because they're hoping that, you know, people would make kind of micro libraries on top of them that help improve the developer ergonomics because there is no one size fits all approach for like an uh for, for building components on the web. So if we can get like these kind of micro APIs that really are easy to compose together, developers could write their own mini framework or their own mini library to make that ergonomic fit for them. Would you say that somebody should create like a stencil for people to copy from? Oh, Nick. Oh, Nick. (laughs) Segway. That was like the most forced segue, my friend. (laughs) Uh, But it it is actually really interesting. We had the conversation a couple weeks back about jQuery uh, as a programming library and model. And actually, like web components are much closer to that type of thinking and programming of this very imperative style rather than the declarative approach that has kind of taken over modern web development in a lot of ways. So it does raise the question of, are they intended to be worked on directly or are they a primitive that you then want to wrap up in a framework like a stencil or something else? I guess it really just depends. I would say that they are meant to be something that you build on top of or that you are creating some sort of abstraction, a stencil, a lit HTML, something that's based on web components 
but you have some niceties on top of it to make it fun to work with. Depending on who you ask, some people would also say, no, the primitives are perfect and we can always use those. But in real teams that we talked with, not always the case. So tell us how you approach that then with Stencil. How does Stencil simplify that API? So Stencil kind of, think of it as like the melting pot of all different frameworks. Because there's a little bit of Angular in there, there's a little bit of Vue in there, and there's a little bit of React in there. But it all builds on the idea of, can we simplify the web component authoring process? So we use decorators to annotate classes and say, here's our component tag, here's some associated styles with it. Should it use Shadow DOM? We basically borrowed the component decorator from Angular. We have decorators for setting properties on the component that get reflected back to the HTML element um, that are reactive. So anytime a value is uh, changed on those properties, it'll automatically trigger a re-render and update the bindings. And then it's authored all in JSX. So they'll use JSX and there's like a small virtual DOM for uh, speed and updates. So if you're using React, a stencil component feels pretty familiar. Like that authoring experience is uh, basically one and the same, except we can use class. How big is the stencil runtime? It depends on what, what it is that you use. So everything itself is pre-shakeable. So if you are just rendering out a static div that says, hello world, the runtime ends up being like nothing. Uh, if you are bringing in more of the reactivity aspects of it with the property decorators and some of the uh, watchers that we have in there, uh, it can go up a little bit, but it's never going to be like the size of a full-fledged framework. Like It's significantly smaller than React. Does that get embedded? Like, are you able to just load that once? I'm not super familiar with how web components handle like shared runtimes like that, because you've you've got these individual component packages. Like, do you end up, one of the complaints that's been raised about Svelte, for example, is that you end up with a lot of duplicated code in each component because it's compiling down, but it doesn't have this ability to share the runtime. So it's substantially smaller with small numbers of components, but scales substantially more rapidly than like a React application. Right. Do you get the same effect or are you able to share that code in some way? If you have, say, a component library with 10 stencil components and you're, you get one runtime or one namespace that is for that component library. So component A, B, C all reference that runtime or that kind of namespace uh, uh, set of features and they can reference that. If you're including multiple stencil component libraries, like if you include an Ionic one, uh, another one called Shoelace, those might have conflicting features because each component library could be using different APIs. But you're not going to have like one virtual DOM implementation for this component, another virtual DOM for this component. That stuff kind of gets normalized. Got it. So basically, when you build Ionic using stencil, you get a single runtime that all of your web components are able to reference. Yep, and be lazy loaded. Does the Shadow DOM change that at all? Like, I, I'm not super familiar with how that works, but would that be its own self-contained environment that needs its own runtime? No, because the scope in which our stuff works in, really, we're only look, paying attention to the host. 
So as the component gets authored, we're just listening for how our properties or how our events methods being triggered on this host element. Then we can compute the inner elements for in the shadow DOM programmatically and just update all of that. So we kind of remove our, like we're using shadow DOM, but that just becomes an artifact of how the components get built. It all gets updated programmatically internal to how Stencil and the components work. So users don't really pay attention to all that. It's just a, a, an implementation detail that we know. And I kind of mentioned it quickly at the end there before you asked it. All those components get lazy loaded on the fly. So you're not having to reference them. If you're just using the raw web components, once you import that main runtime, it knows what components it should be using. And as it gets parsed out, it'll lazy load each component on the fly. So ends up being very, very small. You don't happen to have typical numbers on that, do you? Since you challenged me to make you uncomfortable. Okay, let's go. You want, let's get, let's get uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, it really depends on, again, your use case. So if I go in my own terminal right now, I'm going to a disk folder that I have. And if I look at, say, uh, that's not the right file. Like they tend to be pretty like sub 1K, sometimes a few hundred bytes. Per component? Per component, because they're all specialized to do this one thing. Like the biggest file that I have in this project is framework code. And that's at like 500 kilobytes. Everything else that is like... Whoa, 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 whoa. 500 kilobytes? What do you mean framework code? That's like the framework runtime and the framework API for... In this case, it's an Angular project. This is including 500 kilobytes for Angular. Oh, okay. Angular being 500K doesn't bother me. I was right. like, wait, you're adding 500K <laughs> of Ionic framework? But no, no, no Angular no. is already obscenely large. And so, yeah. But like we're adding for one of these, which is like including three or four different components. It's like five kilobytes and it's like a spinner. So it generates SVG on the fly. So it's a little bit more complex. Uh, but yeah, five kilobytes for that component. And that includes whatever Ionic runtime there is that's separated from no, Angular? No, that, that's just the one component. The Ionic runtime itself would be wrapped into like a vendor file. So it'd be 10 kilobytes. So not that, not that crazy. No, no, they're relatively small. If you were using Angular, you wouldn't even notice because you're already paying for 500 kilobytes of Angular. If you're using React in the entire React ecosystem, you wouldn't even notice anyway because you get React, React Router, Redux. Fair point. <laughs> I will highlight that neither of these is my favorite framework, though I have in the past used more React. than I, I use React a lot right now because of work, but um, I haven't used Angular that much in years. If you're going to pick one, Svelte Review is the way to go, right? If it fits your mental model. <laughs> that is actually, that's a very good point, right? There is actually no best framework. It's about matching your mental model, the skills on your team, all of those different pieces. If we were doing sizing battles, those two frameworks come out a little bit smaller. They have other trade-offs. But it's no pre-act. At least we can all agree. <laughs> it's no pre-act or spell. Nothing can get that small. And you can handle all of them. So no worries. Yeah. Ionic wins either way. We don't care what framework you use. Do you actually have a insight into the, the distribution of frameworks of people using Ionic? Like how many folks are using it with what frameworks? Yeah. So for historical context, we are still pretty heavily Angular focused. But with the release of both Vue and React bindings, 
we're starting to see the gap close pretty quickly. So I would say Angular is ahead. Then Angular is like probably at the 40%. React's probably 25 to 30. And then Vue and you know, no framework are is taking up the the last bits of it. If I can do math correctly, that's actually that's more even than I would have expected, given how long you had Angular only. Cool. It's yeah. I mean, people people were asking for React support for years, even before we wanted to do the whole cross framework thing. So I think once we added that, people were like, "Yes, this is what I wanted. React makes sense for me." And okay. And we're seeing like a similar thing happen with Vue right now. I would say let's come back in, you know, 2021 and uh, hopefully the world will be back to normal. And uh, the numbers would be a little like a third, a third, a third for each of them. I don't know if we can count on the world being back to normal (laughs) for much of 2021, but maybe 2022. I think 2022 is going to be a banner year for in-person events. Mm-hmm. everybody's going to be so sick of being on your own and we'll be finally past things. And like, everybody's like party. <laughs> That's giving people too much credit. I say 2025 and we're going to have some uh, pretty awesome conferences. It'll be like IO for every single conference. Yes. Amazing. I would love that. Now, speaking of the gap between frameworks, uh, let's talk about another gap, the phone gap. And <laughs> <laughs> how, how does... You mean Ionic. Cordova, right? <laughs> I do. I actually mean Capacitor. I'm trying to transition into talking about Capacitor. Uh, Mike, why don't you tell us what Capacitor is? Sure. Uh, Capacitor is our native runtime and API uh, library for taking your web app, shipping it to a native device, and getting access to native device features like um, geolocation, the camera, Bluetooth, file system. You know, you're kind of running the mill native device features. So it's essentially a component library for Cordova, like the native half of Ionic? It's more like a full replacement for Cordova. Okay, so you're not actually building inside of Cordova anymore. Because yeah. once again, my Ionic background is years old. And yeah, it yeah. used to be that like you were using that as a tool chain. But this is a different tool chain. Let's kind of rewind the clock a little bit. We were, again, built all on top of Cordova from like the early days because that was the best solution at the time. But as you know, time's gone on, we wanted to do our own things and we had our own we were developing our own opinions on how should this native cross-platform library stuff be done. Pretty haphazardly, we hacked together some demos and over like six months or so of time, we solidified something that took a lot of inspiration from things like React Native, a competitor of ours, Native Script, how they kind of approached managing the native projects and we're like okay well what could we do that takes inspiration from that and is still part of cordova in spirit so we have full native project access no components inside of it uh you're using things like android libraries cocoa pods for managing native dependencies and just getting a javascript api that you can reference in your projects to call these native apis and so that I understand, this is it looks like this is an open source project. Is it entirely managed and run by Ionic, the company? Because y'all are a company at this, like you have business model and all that, not just doing open source, right? So is it a company run open source project at this point? 
Yes and no. I mean, like it's company. It's like we have a team from Ionic who are maintaining it, working on it, adding features. But we do have a pretty nice community that is sending some commits, sending some patches here and there, building out third party plugins and APIs. But it is something that, you know, it's kind of corporate stewardship. Okay. But we want the community to... From a governance model, y'all are running the governance, but you have an engaged uh, yeah. community. From governance model, yeah, it's all kind of driven by us, but we do have the community uh, voice uh, represented. Question about open source governance models. I am touched. No one asks that stuff. Well, we are representing the change log here, so we care pretty deeply about that. Um, so question then, right? Because Cordova came out of PhoneGap. PhoneGap was a commercial product. They open sourced it. I believe they put it under the Apache Foundation. Is that correct? Do you all have intentions to move to a more open governance model or is that not in the cards for now? I don't think it's in the cards for now. I think a lot of what... So when we saw Cordova go to Apache, um, that there's obviously a lot of benefit there. But there's also there's a process involved to make sure that you know things go through the Apache process are done the Apache way. That we kind of saw that as a factor for why it was getting held back or kind of not iterating fast enough. So for us, being all on GitHub, being kind of just open source, but we kind of can dictate how the releases happen, what features get in, how the uh, overall vision happens. I think it makes sense for what we want the project to do and what we want the project to have for features where we don't have to get gain consensus from an entire board or have like a, uh, a voting process. Like we want to release this. We have to vote on it. If there's something broken, just release it. Just make a fix and you know, ship it and hope that you didn't break anything else. Yeah, I don't want to derail this discussion too far because there definitely I've I mean I've led a corporate run open source project as well. Like no judgment there, but there are definite pros and cons to both. It doesn't seem like Ionic is is going to give up on this project anytime soon, but definitely that is. I will say that we are making a lot of leadway and putting a lot of effort into making sure the project is very successful because it is a big factor in how our company is successful. If Capacitor is successful, Ionic is successful. If Ionic Framework is successful, Ionic the company is successful. So it kind of helps us make sure that we are investing the right time and energy into uh, maintaining these projects and growing a community voice around it. Hey there, party animals, Jared here. I want to take a moment to tell you about Changelog++. It's our membership program where you can directly support JS Party and all of the podcasts we create here at Changelog. Ditch the ads, get closer to the metal, and enjoy supporting JS Party into the future. Once again, that's changelog.com slash plus plus. We'd love to have you with us.
So let's dig in a little bit more about Capacitor and Ionic and how you make life good for developers. Because I think, you know, looking back at experience with Cordova, setting up a build environment, build chain, dealing with it, getting all of the different integrations set up so that you've got, you know, because often when you're doing native stuff, you're having to work in many different languages. It's not just a JavaScript environment anymore or a web environment. You've also got, a, you know, iOS environment, you've got to deal with Xcode, you've got uh, Android environment, Google's whole build chain, all these other things. So maybe talk to us a little bit about the developer tooling you've built out around these areas. So, yeah, I mean, the developer tooling in this, this aspect is, I think, closer to the native chain than trying to abstract it away. Like, if you're building a native Android app, yeah, Android Studio might be a lot to download and might look confusing at first, but it's like WebStorm with just a different coat of paint on it. It also gives you probably the best step forward for building something that is going to follow the best practices, support the most platforms, be less error prone to user configuration error. Basically, building a native app in Android Studio is like I press a play button. It tells me to fill in this signing information, and I don't really need to manage it myself, which I can't count on both hands how many times I've had that issue with Cordova because I would run out of like fingers. Like Having that kind of configuration and maintaining it across these platforms in an abstracted way is super difficult. So if you're going to use uh, native tooling, just use the native SDK and the native IDE. It's probably the best tool for the job. You build using like the the capacitor the capacitor bindings, but then to actually like test and and deploy the app, you you're using the native um, IDEs for each of the platforms. Yeah, I mean we're we're using them in a sense that we are giving you a native project. You open it up, you set the signing information, and then you hit the big button that looks like play this song, and it builds for you. We don't necessarily expect most web developers to want to dive into Swift, Java, or Kotlin and start writing the native configuration. So we want to make sure that when they get these native projects, uh, we can document the process on how to generate your build and how to generate that binary, uh, which is a lot easier than saying, okay, let's go through and generate the build configuration that we've created out of thin air and it's this obscure reference to a build.json file and we're hoping that we can cover every single use case like no just open up android studio or xcode it's going to be the best way to get a native project built right out of the box and for those of us who have spent the last 15 years in vim and you know look at an ide like that and say okay how do i recreate this with plugins and other pieces that are going to let me work in an environment that is so much infinitely better than all these silly GUIs for code. How would you recommend approaching that? Um, I mean, so at that point, uh, there's these things called shell commands that we can bash out to. Uh, so you would do colon, exclamation mark. No, um, for, for like people who are not used to that editor, uh, like opening up these IDEs, they can be scary at first, but so can be learning them. It just takes a little bit to kind of figure out. And that's why the documentation aspect of making sure that we are built, we are we are pointing people in the right direction and not kind of just leaving them to their own devices. But if we want to get into how to configure them, we can always do that. Yeah. So I actually came to know about you 
because of your NVIM TypeScript plugin. And you've actually developed several plugins for Vim. Um, what got you into that? So we can get pretty recursive here. I watched a talk from a meetup by Unic <laughs> really? about how to do uh, modern development in Vim um, <laughs> because I was just like, I saw a co coworker using Vim. I thought it, looked, it was the like coolest thing I had ever seen. I was like, whoa, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm just in Vim. I was like, what's Vim? And I went on like a two-year spiral of just like how to set Vim up and how to configure Vim to be like great for a web developer. Uh, saw your talk, learned a whole lot, and I was like, okay, I think I have something set up. Found uh, this project called NeoVim, got involved with that, started helping maintain like a Node.js binding so you could write Vim plugins in JavaScript. And then I was like, well, I got to write a TypeScript plugin for, for NeoVim because there isn't one that works and is asynchronous and fast. And I, I ended up writing one. Nice. Yeah, I, I, you took it way further than I have. I haven't really written anything. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I've written some. Like I have a lot of Vim script in my dot files, but it's uh, like not packaged as a I guess it is kind of packaged as a plugin just because I'm following, you know, the the directory structure and the the file names, things like that. I just haven't isolated it as Vim plugins. But I have looked into yours a bit, uh, specifically the, the NVIM TypeScript one. And a lot of that is actually written in TypeScript, which I thought was pretty cool. Does that make it easier or was it specifically easier because you're you're working like it's it's a plugin for TypeScript? It was easier in the sense that I wasn't having to learn a new language to work with TypeScript's APIs. I could just import like something from the TypeScript's library and just use it right away. And I could import various things from like a temp file uh, creator from NPM. I was just like, pulled that up and I was like, oh, okay, well, I can use this in my plugin and know that it's going to work. Uh, it's basically recreating like a node runtime inside of NeoVim. So I was like, I know how to write stuff. Uh, for a node environment, it should be the same thing, right? <laughs> uh, there's some weird race conditions and things kind of coming out of order that you have to manage there. But once you're aware of those, you just kind of await everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us about some other plugins that you've written uh, for, for NeoVim or for Vim. Are there any Ionic-specific or capacitor-specific plugins? Once again, like, you can point me at a GUI all, or a, you know, modern ID all day long, but like my life is in the terminal and in Vim. I've tried, I tried VS code. It's supposed to be super cool. I pulled in the Vim bindings or whatever, and I have to get out of my terminal. Like, what is this? <laughs> no, I, I fully agree. Um, actually, I think I can say, cause it's, it's open source. Uh, we, we basically are planning to like create like a capacitor build command inside of the capacitor CLI. So that way we'll just use, um, the Android SDK from the command line, uh, and then Xcode builds from the command line. So in theory, there should be a cap build iOS or a capacitor build Android Vim plugin coming soon. Okay, now you're talking my language because yes. you know once it's in a CLI, I can script it. And once it's plugged into my editor, I can access it from anywhere. <laughs> Trust me, it was tough having to go from like, all right, well, I can run my build. I run the capacitor uh, commands, and that's like, I have to reach for my mouse. <laughs> uh, my hands are hurting already just thinking about it. Now that it's like all CLI-based, creating a plugin should be uh, no problem. 
But yeah, other plugins I've created, I built a theme based on this thing called Oceanic Next. So Dan Abramov had like this really, really cool, like slightly blue theme that he would always use for his uh, talks. And I was like, what theme is that? What theme is that? And then I found it. And I was like, cool, it's for Sublime. I don't use Sublime. So I made a Vim color scheme for it. More recently, I've made a code formatting plugin. There's one right now called uh, NeoFormat, uh, but it's all written in VimScript, and I want to try out this new language called Lua. So I wrote a code formatter for NeoVim written in Lua that just generates and automatically will like format your code, basically all async. Is that like specific to a language, or is it language agnostic? How does it determine how to format? So you have to pass in the configuration for it. There's like a bajillion different formats that you could use. So I figured just let the users figure that out. So I have mine wired up to use Prettier for most things, but I have it set up for Rust format. I have it set up for Lua format, for uh, Clang format, if that's your thing. If the tool supports like passing in code via standard in, you should be able to do it. I have a branch where I'm working on passing it to like a real file, but standard in is so, so much easier to do. And I just print it back out to the file. That's awesome. So it, it's really just facilitating it to another tool that's probably walking the ASD and doing things with it and then passing it back. Is that kind of yeah, the gist it's of it? using the Vim mantra, just pass it off to another tool that knows how to use something and then print that to my buffer. I love it. Yes. <laughs> That's very cool. I, this is like the classic scratch your own itch and have fun doing it in the open type scenario. I wanted to learn Lua. Uh, it seemed like an interesting language. Vim, NeoVim added it as like a feature. I was like, it seems like such a weird choice of a language. So I was like, oh, let's actually write some Lua. And now I'm like, I can see why it's pretty cool. Because I have like C, access to like random C libraries now. I'm like, I don't know why I would want to use this. But cool, I can do that. <laughs> all right. I feel like we've pretty much exhausted the gamut. That's <laughs> <laughs> all we got. That is really cool, though. I didn't know that you watched my talk and got something out of that. So that's really cool to hear. Is that when the hoi hoi started? <gasps> or did you not know that that was a Nick thing, too? I had no idea that that was a Nick thing. <laughs> I could have sworn I told you at KCDC a few years ago. But it was also like a bajillion degrees in Kansas City yeah. around that time. So <laughs> yeah. I can't tell if the heat was just making me like, yeah, you, you, you told him about that, didn't you? Or is that just the heat playing tricks on your memory? You might have, and I may have just forgotten. But still, it's really cool. That video, I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But almost nothing about that what I show in that video is true in my setup today. So <laughs> it's completely different. You should do a new video, Nick. I, I'm planning on it, but I, yeah. The funny thing is that one, like it's gotten over half a million views on YouTube and it's something that I literally put together. Have you turned ads on for that? I did. Yeah. <laughs> After 200,000 views, I turned on ads. Monetize that stuff. Yeah. So that's 300,000 more views on YouTube. That's what, 15 cents? It's actually gotten over 800 at this point. So, I mean. 800 wow. cents? That's a lot of cents. 8,000 cents. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. I, I put that together in an hour before the talk and then gave it. And I have to somehow recreate that magic to recapture the 2020 version. But it will never happen. Your yeah. next video will get 300 views. 
what you need to do is go on to Twitch, which is what all the cool kids do these days. Go on to Twitch and then just on the fly, just recreate that talk. It's like, all right, we're going to go over some Vim. Hi, everyone. <laughs> that terrifies me. All those young kids. I don't know. They'll, they'll <laughs> laugh at me. <laughs> I don't understand what these Twitch people do these days. What's the, what's the Twitch bombing? Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike, for, for joining us. And uh, of course, we'll we'll link to, to you in the show notes. But um, is there anything else that you want to provide with like ways to, to reach out to you or to contact you? Yeah, probably the best place to get in touch is um, on Twitter. Like many people, I'm just on Twitter and I have that phone glued to my eyes all the time. So <laughs> tweet at me, I'm Hardington. I'm pretty responsive. Well, thanks so much for being here, for making it a party. And uh, we'll see you all next week. If you dig this show, you should know that we produce other awesome podcasts just like it. Check out Practical AI, Brain Science, and of course, The Changelog, which we've been doing for over a decade. Learn more at changelog.com slash podcasts. And if you love what we're up to, help us help you by joining Changelog Plus Plus. It's our membership program, so you can directly support our work and make the ads disappear. Check it out at changelog.com slash plus plus. Thanks again to Breakmaster Cylinder for the beats and our sponsors for having our back, Fastly, Linode, and LaunchDarkly. That's all for today. On the next episode, I'm joined by Suze, Amel, and Chris. We're talking API design, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So stay tuned for that one. It's coming at you next week.